Welcome to the RSA Events Podcast, the home of world-changing ideas and debate. Hello, everyone. I'm Sue Pritchard. I'm director of the RSA Food, Farming and Countryside Commission, and it is my very, very great pleasure to welcome you here to today's very special event. Eight months ago, um, I sat in my daughter's graduation at, uh, at Bristol University, and I shed a little tear, not initially for her, I'm afraid, but for the guest speaker, a tiny woman dwarfed by the lectern, but whose passion and power and, and righteous anger reverberated around the Wills building, connecting with the graduands and with the audience alike. And afterwards, my daughter said to me how privileged she felt to have heard that. So it is really no exaggeration to say that uh, today is an extra special occasion for me, since that woman is joining us today, Christiana Fugueres, with her colleague, Tom Rivet Karnak. If I could host anyone on the stage of the Great Room, it would be these two extraordinary people. So to some extent, I think they need no introduction, but for the purposes of uh, the film and for those that might be looking in, Christiana, as you know, is the United Nations Executive Secretary for Climate Change between 2010 and 2016 and the public face of the most pivotal climate agreement in history, the Paris Agreement of 2015. And Tom Rivet Karnak was Christiana's senior political strategist at the UN, and together they're co-founders of Global Optimism, an organisation focused on bringing about environmental and social change, and co-authors of the book that we are going to be uh, talking about today, The Future We Choose. So a couple, a couple of weeks ago, Christiana and Tom told me that their new book could be read by my mother, who's 92, or my daughter, and, uh, and they're absolutely right. It sets out simply and clearly and with a fierce urgency the choices facing us right now and in this critical decade ahead. It is both a passionate call to arms and a timely and welcome reminder that there are practical things we can all do to make a difference. It is time to choose who we want to be, the world we want to live in, and the world we want to bequeath to future generations. So it's a huge honour for me to be able to discuss it with you here today. Before we kick off, we have a short film to look at, just a little glimpse of some of the key messages in the book. So we'll just roll that film first. So um, before we get into the book itself, just tell, tell us all a little bit more about how you both met and how you started that journey to get to producing the book. Christiane. Oh, well, first of all, thank you very much for that um, lovely introduction. My best to your daughter. Um, and does everyone agree that Tom looks really good in pink? <laughs> <laughs> I think we need to get your pink jumper. It's nice. I like it. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> so um, how did we meet? Um, I had been at the um, UN um, preparing the negotiations toward the Paris Agreement for several years, and we were getting perilously close to 2015. And we could see um, by that time that we had a high likelihood of, uh, of getting an agreement, uh, which was already quite good news, given the fact that what we had inherited was uh, substantially different than that, which was the disaster that had occurred in Copenhagen in the year 2009, when all countries got together and agreed to not agree. Or in fact, they didn't even agree to disagree. Um, and so by this time, several years down the, the way, we had a pretty good sense that we, were, that we had the basics of an agreement, which was good. But, um, but we didn't think that the common ground that we had woven together among the 195 countries that had to unanimously agree to this, 
We didn't think that that common ground was ambitious enough. We thought it sort of reflects where they think they can go now, but, um, but it doesn't reflect the future. And it certainly doesn't reflect what science is demanding. And we kind of had the very good premonition, which turns out to be correct, that this would have been the last time that we could get all of these countries together to adopt a unanimous framework for how to deal with climate change. Um, because we probably, you know, all the stars were aligning for us. And we didn't know whether the geopolitics would unravel quickly thereafter, which it did. And we thought, right, if this is the one moment that we have and we, we can get all countries together, then we cannot settle for what is good. We have to actually push for what is necessary. And what is necessary is defined by science. And science at that point was already very clear that what was necessary was to get to zero net emissions by 2050. Well, that was not common agreement. And, um, and honestly, the traditional diplomacy and politics had taken us already quite far in having people go from never, you know, never possible to have an agreement on climate change to, and, and okay, there was, there was a, a common ground for an okay agreement, but since we wanted much more, we wanted what was necessary, we thought, right, we have to go beyond traditional diplomacy here. Um, and so I was scouting around for who was going to bring a very different um, approach and skill set, certainly none that you would typically find at the UN, wonderful institution as it is. Um, and so I was, I was asking some friends, and uh, actually a British friend. Um, can I say who it is? Do it. Paul Dickinson, a very good friend, um, uh, founder of CDP, the Carbon Disclosure Project. He said to me, um, you know, there's this, there's this one young man who's um, currently uh, heading CDP in the United States, and um, he has a, you know, he has a brain on his shoulders, and he has a different way of looking at things. And I go, yeah, well, what else? There are many of those like that. And he goes, well, he was a British, uh, he was a um, Buddhist monk, and I went. Now I want to meet that person. It's the best career move I ever made. <laughs> So, um, yeah, so Paul arranged it so that we could meet in New York where Tom was living with his family. Um, and, um, yeah, what's the second part of that story? Thank you, and, and, and lovely to be here. Thank you. Um, nice to talk to you all. So, so this was, like, 2013, yeah. and I was working in New York. I'd been there for a few years with my family, and then I got the call from this woman called Christiana Figueres saying, um, you know, I've got this thing. Well, I've... first you said, who's that? Yeah, exactly. Yeah, yeah. I, it was about 3 o'clock in the morning because she got the time zone wrong. <laughs> first um, and she said, look, I've got this thing I've got to do. I've got to bring the whole world to common agreement on climate change. Are you interested in being involved? So well, we, at three in the morning. At three in the morning. I've um, had better offers. So, um, so we met in New York, and um, we spent, like, uh, the best part of a whole day. And we walked from the lower part of Manhattan all the way through the city to the top and talked about what the world had to achieve, what had happened so far, what still had to happen, and also, critically, kind of what the consequences were of it not happening, right? And that's a, that's a chance to do something for humanity. At the end of which, she turned to me and said, it's clear to me that you have none of the skills necessary for this job, but I think you'd be great, let's do it. So, uh, so I moved my family to Germany, and, and I had this kind of unbelievable privilege of having this role where I sort of picked up where diplomacy left off. So we had 195 countries that had to come with ambitious agreements, right, to Paris. And we knew that there were a significant number that were not really getting on board with what they had to do. So my role was to find ways to persuade them when diplomatic approaches were unsuccessful. So I built a network of hundreds or thousands of companies, people, religious leaders, business leaders, investors, and others, and we would utilize this network to help the diplomatic process be more effective and encourage national leaders that this was the moment for leadership. Help diplomatic process be more. That is 
the only diplomatic thing you've ever said in your life. <laughs> but we'll take it for now. Okay. <laughs> the other thing Christiana said to me is that I couldn't tell anyone I was doing this, right? You have to make the agreement more likely and more ambitious, but you can't tell anyone you're doing it. So we would build a system. But you have to understand yeah. why, right? Because these, these are the national governments that are the only ones who hold the pen and the only ones who are allowed to sit at the negotiating table and have a go at the tax and, you know, and put their national positions in if they can negotiate them. Um, and private sector and other stakeholders, cities and, you know, associations, they're, not, they're seen by the federal governments as being like, this is not your space. Thank you very much for your opinions, but this is not your space. And um, national governments are very protective of that turf. Um, and furthermore, they're sovereign. So you can't really tell them what to do. Uh, and, uh, and they pay their fees to the UN Convention. So I couldn't possibly, A, tell them that we were working behind their back. And secondly, that we were using their fees to the UN Convention to put together a team that was actually doing something that they didn't know. So it was sort of an odd situation. So we put Tom and his team in a completely different building. Um, we fundraised different monies uh, for this. Uh, and we said, right, go at it, but in secret. And then? Well, so just and to finish that story, so we would get to the point in the end where we could use this system in real time. Right? That was the end point. So I would sit in the negotiation hall, and one of the countries would say something that would put a spanner in the works of the negotiation. I would get a nod from Christiana, and I'd put my system into work, and I'd call somebody who would call someone else who would call the minister, and then we'd watch the position of that country change in real time as we were sitting in the negotiation hall. And that's how we sort of navigated our way through. And no one knew. Well, this is spoiling our Very plan somewhat. <laughs> 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 However, you've, you've now given away the big secret for our preparations for COP26. So right. let's, uh, let's talk about that a little bit more before we get into the book, because as you can imagine, in the UK right now, we are very focused on the opportunities that COP26 might provide for us yeah. to change the focus of world governments. Uh, but I think we're all pretty aware that when we start... Sorry, but is this not the country of James Bond? James Bond. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. Bad news, he's not a real person. <laughs> I thought but, we were engaging him for the cop. But, but, but that said, I'm sure yeah. there'll be people applying for that role fairly shortly. Yeah. But, let's, but let's, come back, let's come back to the learnings okay. that we can apply. Because Paris was an extraordinary occasion. Um, but we also know now that some of the metrics that we are going to be measuring during 2020, the super year, are not going to be as, let's say, um, encouraging as we might have hoped. And this year is the time mm -hmm. where we will be expecting yep. countries to absolutely step up the plate. Now you've given away the secret of how to right. work behind the scenes. What else can we learn from <laughs> in terms of preparing the ground for what, frankly, is going to be, I think, an, an equally difficult COP, especially when we've got apparently leaders of the free world actively starting to um, you know, argue against it. So yeah. hints, tips, learnings. So, I mean, arguably it will be an even more difficult COP, mm. right, for lots of different reasons. So one fundamental difference between Paris and Glasgow mm. is mm. that there's no negotiated outcome in Glasgow, yeah. right? So Paris had all the countries sitting around together, everyone had to agree, and then it was gaveled through as a decision. There are small things that need to be agreed in Glasgow, but the main thing that needs to happen is each country actually needs to improve their nationally determined plans and then come to Glasgow with those plans. So the way the Paris Agreement was structured was that there was a long-term goal to get to net zero by the middle of the century and that countries would come every five years with plans of increasing ambition to get us onto that trajectory. And that's the... That's the mechanism, right? That's the international mechanism that was the breakthrough that was the Paris Agreement. So this is the first test yeah. as to whether that's going to happen. Now, one of the reasons why it's more difficult is because we have a much more difficult political landscape since then, right? You know, the idea that countries can come together and do big things together is less trendy than it was in 2015. Yeah. And, you know, you have leaders who you know from the outset will not participate. So mm. whatever happens, Trump will still be president. 
Scott Morrison from Australia will not step up, and neither will Bolsonaro from Brazil. So you have at least those countries who are not going to step up. So a couple of things out from that. One is the UK government has a massive diplomatic job, and they can learn a lot from what the French did in 2015, right? This is a whole of government, everyone outreach, all ministers, all embassies, major diplomatic focus. And I know that the government in this country has a couple of other things on its mind this year in terms of a Brexit trade agreement. Brexit will be a footnote to history, right? This is more important. And they really need to identify that and put the full weight of government behind that. The other thing I would say is, given the reality of the geopolitic and the national governments, it's really important to focus on everyone else in society. So it's really important that part of COP is businesses, cities, investors, regions, everyone else coming along as well to, you know, to open the doors of that process to ensure we can go as far as we can. And the reason why that second bit is so important is because the logic that as is at the basis of the Paris Agreement defies um, the um, attitude that we had before of uh, you go first and then maybe I will follow, which is exactly what we had before. And the Paris Agreement really turns that completely on its head because the Paris Agreement is not, uh, is not a top-down imposition of what needs to happen in each country, but rather it's very much of a bottom-up invitation for every country to identify what path, what social, political, economic path that country wants to follow in its own view um, and in its own vision for the future, and then to register that under the Paris Agreement. And so, you know, while we know that geopolitics is always present, and as Tom says, US, Brazil, and Australia will, will not be rowing in the same direction, ultimately, ultimately, if we remember the spirit of the Paris Agreement, that should not matter. Because it's not about who is doing what and let me see but rather, what do I want? And most countries have understood that this, I mean, sadly, those three countries, you know, have not, have un-understood un mm. or forgotten or whatever. Mm. Um, but most countries have understood that, yes, of course, this is about a global need, but more immediately, it is about self-interest. It is about cities that are more livable. It is about land that is more fertile. It is about transportation that is more efficient. It is about air that is more breathable. It's about public health that is much better, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. The list is long. But acting on climate change and reducing the intensity of carbon in the economy is not acting against our interest. If it were, we would not be able to do it. It is actually an accelerant of our interests. And so in as much as we can get, and I think that is where the, the, the work of the British government needs to be from here until then, to remind everyone that we are not looking over each other's shoulders. We're not looking at this as a burden. Yes, of course, it is a shared responsibility, but beyond that, it is an opportunity that most countries should not miss on. Mm -hmm. So let's, um, let's follow that one through just a, a little bit longer. Um, building on what you were saying there, Tom, about focusing our government's attention or what mm. we as a country really care about. Is that why, Christiana, you said over the weekend that it's time to support civil disobedience? Well, I, I think civil disobedience has a huge role to play. Um, and, and the fact is that we're dealing with something that is so complex and so urgent, right? Because mm -hmm. if it's complex, but it can take many years, maybe that sort of dissipates the, the intensity, but it's both complex and urgent. And so the, comp the, the combination of the two puts us into sort of a pressure cooker here. Mm -hmm. um, and, and that is why we think that civil disobedience is absolutely necessary. Because at this point, with the delays that we have had, at this point, we do need very, very courageous, bold, moves forward from everyone, from federal governments, city governments, state governments, um, corporations. And civil disobedience has a wonderful role to play because it puts a lot of pressure, it puts a lot of, um, of public attention and awareness raising 
on what needs to be done. Um, and, uh, and, and, you know, we, we say in the book that actually history shows mm -hmm. that once you get civil disobedience, especially of those who are the most vulnerable and the most affected, which in this case is the kids, right? Mm -hmm. um, and so the young people on the streets are fantastic. And um, once you get to 3.5% of the entire population out on the streets in civil disobedience mass movements, history shows that that is when you have a tipping point. So we're not very far from that, right? Um, and civil disobedience can, uh, can really help to focus the mind. Indeed. So I'm, I'm going to want to hand over to the audience in a short while, but before we do, why don't you just scamper through the architecture of the book, sure. the mindsets and the actions that you're inviting yeah. us to focus on? Sure. Just before I do that, I just want to add something to what Christiana just said, which is, I think, a critical issue for us in the UK to be aware of this year, right? This is a really big responsibility that the UK has taken on this year. If we don't... Our pathway to dealing with this is halving emissions in the next 10 years. Fully 50% reduction by 2030. That is an annualised rate of reduction of 7.6%, which is unprecedented in terms of the level of cooperation, the level of focus that that's going to require. And not getting a resounding outcome in Glasgow will be really difficult to recover from that. Not impossible, but it'll be really difficult. Now, we have a government in this country that has just delivered a policy that half the country fundamentally disagree with. Right? And I already see, as you look around at environmentalists, a sort of sense of like, well, we don't want those guys to be successful. We need to get over that really quickly, right? This is more important. And so for those of us in the environmental community that are kind of looking at this and thinking, well, you know, they're not really serious, et cetera, and they've done all these other things, we need to find a way past that so that we can collaborate and be constructive in that debate because this is the critical moment to do that. Excellent. So just to your question about the book, so we do three, we have three different sections in the book very broadly. Um, and that's partly why we wrote it now, right? What I just described about that critical moment and these 10 years, this once in humanity opportunity to get on top of this in the next 10 years. In the first part of the book, we have, we take you on a kind of immersive journey to what life would be like in 2050. So my kids will be younger than I am now in 2050. And we are standing at this fulcrum between these two completely different worlds that are just a few decades away, that are characterized by much of the detail that you saw in that, that video at the beginning, right? Very different worlds that it's really hard for us to realize just how unique this moment is and just how different they'll be in most of our lifetimes. The middle part of the book, we take aim or we appreciate the fact that that's kind of a lot, right, for us to realize that to realize that sense of responsibility for us who are here now as the generation that are making the decisions at the moment, right? And how we face that, particularly when we don't know exactly what to do about it, is a really critical issue. So in the middle part of the book, we talk about how do we as human beings show up for this? What types of attitudes, what types of approaches can we take that can enable us to be a constructive part of that positive future and that can sustain the action that's needed to have an outcome in all of our roles? And then in the final part of the book, we talk about, well, what can we do? And in what can we do, we again take a broad lens. We do talk about how we can approach it. We also talk about how we can take responsibility for our own emissions in our own lives. Now, there's sometimes a discussion about this of, does that really mean anything and is it worth it? We think it's really critical. Number one, because it really can be significant when done at scale and we think that there's signs of it being done at scale. Number two is it will make you feel better. This is kind of an overwhelming thing. And if you start taking real action in your life, then actually it'll make you feel much more engaged in the issue. And we as humans tend to overestimate what we can do in a year and underestimate what we can do in 10. And if we make a plan and we think about it, that's enough time, actually, to reduce our emissions by half or more than half. And this is our one opportunity to do it. The final section we talk about is our relationship with power. So we can't make all the changes ourselves. There needs to be systemic changes as well, such as Christiana talked about it a minute ago. Participation in civil disobedience, we're nearly at tipping points with that. Engaging with corporations and demanding that they provide what is needed to help us live that kind of life. So what we really want is at the end of the book, you know, what's to come, how to face it, 
and how you can be a constructive and positive part of this transformation. And could I just um, add to that why these 10 years? Because um, we, don't, we don't realize that we are just about to flow over the guardrails of what is manageable in society, in the economy, and in fact, in our physical infrastructure. So over the next 10 years, starting this year, in which we should descend our emissions, over the next 10 years, we will be either unconsciously, if we don't do anything about it, because any all our unconscious actions are actually fundamentally a choice, even if it's unconscious. Um, and that unconscious choice over the next 10 years would put us into a certain path, certain means not correct, but rather a for sure path of, um, of constant destruction around the world that we would never be able to reverse. We, we get on to uh, a path of constant destruction, some reconstruction, constant destruction, reconstruction. That would lead to unbearable human pain and, um, and economic destruction. In 2030, if we have not gotten our emissions down to half of what they are right now, now, the amazing thing is that before 2020, we actually didn't have the technologies that are the solution, for example, renewables and all of the other technologies. We really didn't have them at competitive prices that put them at our, at our uh, hand. Uh, we, we had invested in those technologies, but they were not yet successfully ingrained in the system. Today, they are. Secondly, we do not have the capital accumulation that we have had since 2008. We have a capital accumulation in the markets that can really be shifted quite quickly if we decide to do so. And thirdly, we were only experimenting with the policies. So today, for the first time in human history, we have the technologies, the finance, and the policy that all together, if we align them all together, we can get to 50% emissions by 2030. So here is the summary of that. Before 2020, we could not have done it. But after 2030, it's going to be too late. Our children can do nothing about that. It is about these 10 years. It is these 10 years in which we are actually determining the future of humanity and of the planet. So no pressure, <laughs> just let's get it done. Well, let, let me just press you one more time before yeah. we um, open this conversation up. Can um, I add one very quick oh, point? Yes, to so, so just, just to add to that, and I think this is also an important element to it, there is enormous progress happening at the moment. And that's not always evident when you kind of look, you know, another good day and the drop of the price of solar panels isn't always the front page news of every newspaper, right? But most days are good days in that direction. Right now, 49% of global GDP is already covered by a target to be at zero emissions or near zero by 2050. Electric vehicles are doubling every 18 months to two years. The technology and the stuff, and it's easy to forget that only 15 months ago, Greta made her first speech at the UN, right? The rate of change is unprecedented. So many of these things are already unfolding, and we're really in with a shot to do this. We really do feel positive about that. So I'm just going to take a therapeutic moment, if you don't mind. Let's pretend nobody else is paying attention okay. right now, because I absolutely want to sit square with you with this you know, commitment to stubborn optimism and radical regeneration and a belief in abundance. Um, and at the same time, I see other significant actors around the world choosing to do things that act against that, that embed inequalities. Uh, my, my friend, my colleague Josie Warden, who works with me here, calls it the servitization, if I can get the word out, of, um, of services in, in which the, the service sector becomes financialized in service of small numbers of people with power. So when we think about you know, how Uber can um, 
operate differently, work differently, it also comes with it a very dark shadow side. Mm. So I suppose what I'm, what I'm asking is how we can hold on to our stubborn optimism and commitment to regeneration at the same time as we must notice that there are other forces who have different versions of a future which serve and protect their own interests and are not working towards the same fair and just transition that we're talking about here. Yeah. Um, and I mean, obviously, you know, like, yeah, like everything else in life, there's no perfect solution. Um, and so, you know, because you mentioned Uber, let's just, you know, pick on them for, for a moment. Um, yes, there are many negative effects of the current practices of Uber. However, that does not mean that they cannot improve with a heck of a lot of feedback that they're receiving from the market. And B, if you go, you know, step one up on that one, what the company Uber and many other of these shared companies are actually moving us toward, definitely, you know, tripping over, over many difficulties, but the movement, the direction, is actually a very interesting direction. Because once we as a global society begin to give up our need to own four wheels or two wheels or three wheels, whatever. Um, once we, uh, and, and, and in industrialized countries, the need to own and in developing countries, the desire to own, which is perhaps even more of a force. Once we understand that transport, just to take your example, transport doesn't have to be a good, it can be a service and a service that is actually informed by the best technology that makes it most efficient in terms of both your time or my time as users, but also more efficient in terms of whatever energy is behind it. And in particular, if that energy behind it is actually completely clean, right? So now we have the service of transport because we will all need that. We have the service of transport, but it's much more efficient. It is clean. Um, it gets the job done, and and hopefully that comes at the same time as a minimization of transport. Right? It doesn't mean that just because we're having more comfortable options for transport that we're then going to do more transport. It should come at the same time as, by the way, we're being forced now through this you know little virus to stop a lot of the transport. Well. What if we learn through that that we actually don't have to transport ourselves all over? So if you, if, you, if you bring all of those forces together and you say, right, we're minimizing transport to the absolute necessary and the transport that is necessary is actually shared, clean, smart, efficient, well, now we're moving in the right direction, right? Um, that doesn't mean that Uber or any of the other companies are perfect. It does mean, however, that they're pushing us to both think and practice in the right direction. That sounds as though what you're calling for is much greater attention to the ethics of the technologies mm. that are available to us, the ethic, that the technologies themselves are not going to save us, but if we pay attention much more closely, perhaps, than we have hitherto, to the ethics of those technologies, we might be... Yeah, I mean, um, I've never seen a technology that was born with morality, right? No. <laughs> we have to do that. Yes. Brilliant. Okay, look, I'm going to open this up now. Can I just have a crack at your floor. optimism questions? Yes, yes, you okay. can. So, Keep so, your hands up yeah. and I'll... Okay, sorry, one sec. So, um, <laughs> yes. you know, it's a really interesting question as to what type of attitude towards the world is the most effective for making change, right? So fear does play a role. Actually, it can play a really important role. And being aware of what that is, you know, seeing the army on the horizon, knowing you need to get organised to defend yourself and respond is a really critical part of that. And part of the challenge of climate change is that there's never been that visual depiction of that until it's too mm. late. So we do say in the book that really facing this, like really feeling this in our bones, what this means, mm. is actually kind of important mm. as part of that step towards it. But then your question was about optimism. And I should just explain that we describe the optimism that we talk about, which we call stubborn optimism, in a slightly different way. Right? So that doesn't mean that we wake up in the morning every day and we think everything's going to be fine. But our experience from the Paris Agreement is that actually the hardest thing was turning this sense of impossibility and we can't do it, it's all too hard and it's too late anyway, 
into a sense of gathering momentum and possibility mm. that then brought all manner of support and enthusiasm and encouragement that ultimately led us to the Paris Agreement that we would say was a fundamental part of that journey. So that optimism was an input, not an output to that process, right? And actually, if you look back at history, that's always been the case. At really dark times, there's been these flashes of optimism and possibility that have changed the world. And that optimism doesn't need to believe that you're going to be successful or even that it's really going that well for you to make the decision that this is the most meaningful way for you to spend your life and actually you'll be determined and do everything you can. Mm. As my lovely colleague Meg Wheatley says, and I think you reference her in the book, at the end of the day, it doesn't really matter how we feel, we just have to keep going. Right, and, and some people like the word courage, they like the word mm. active hope, whatever, it doesn't matter. Yes. Brilliant. Let's let some people have a chat with yeah. you now. So, person on the front here, and then person there, and then the woman with the scarf on just there. Thank you. I just wanted to be a little bit provocative on this sense of consensus, not because I don't believe in it as an idealist, and I'm sure you do too, um, but when the world has faced humanitarian crises in the past, it's not required a consensus, whether you take Nazism in World War II, the Balkans, or any other human tragedy. Isn't there also a path that says, for example, the Amazon may be in Brazil, a nation state, but it is a humanity patrimony. And therefore, the solution doesn't require consensus. It requires a gathering of countries which feel it's important enough to humanity to go in and resolve a behavior because bringing everybody on board may take longer than 10 years. So I don't want to destroy optimism and consensus, but I'm just not sure why we're not approaching it in a slightly more provocative way in the way we approach other humanitarian disasters. So I'm going to take two or three questions at a time, just so we can get through. So the younger man there and then the woman with a nice scarf. Thank you. Uh, you talked about how COP26 might be even more difficult than the Paris Agreement, and you also, but you also talked about how the, the logic of the Paris Agreement made top-down going to bottom-up and taught us our self-interest. So I hope you're optimistic about COP26, seeing the name of your organization, but why optimistic? Why do you think we will make it work. And the woman in the back. Thanks. Um, thank you very much for those opening remarks. Um, I just wanted to go back to you talked about what was really worked in Paris was that sort of sphere of influence and that network and that communication. And you've also hinted that actually there's some sort of gridlock and sort of polarization, just how some people are approaching Glasgow. And it seems to me these, these skills of collaboration, influencing and communicating are fundamentally important to our success. And yet they seem to be really hard for people to do. And I just wonder what would be your advice when it comes to communicating for success in this instance? Okay. Um, let me take a crack at the first two and then sure. you can pick up whatever I drop off and, and, and focus on the third. Um, when I talk about consensus, I was talking about um, the need for consensus within the process of the United Nations. Um, and it was very clear that um, we weren't talking only about the Amazon or only about one ecosystem. We were talking about the entire global economic system. And therefore, since all the participants of the entire global economic system need to have a say, then that means that you need all 195 countries to be there. Um, and, and usually the UN operates by consensus, but in this case it was unanimity, which means no one, no one could actually say they did not agree. So it was just one notch higher. Um, but, but that was the, the context for consensus. It wasn't about one particular ecosystem. The other way of looking at your question is that if you're looking at one ecosystem, I totally agree that not all countries need to agree on what they're going to do that. However, the sovereign government where that ecosystem is needs to agree that they will work collaboratively. And that is not the case in Brazil right now. So, you know, you, you can have consensus, but there's one actor that needs to be there uh, to, to work with those who are willing to work with it, and, and we don't have that right now. Um, the, the, the flash of steel you're seeing here is because this is the absolute nub of United Nations issues is the issue of sovereignty. Yeah. yeah. Um, actually, I'm not sure that COP26 is more difficult than COP21. 
There is um, one way in which it's more difficult. There's another way, and we've spoken to that. There's another perspective in which it's actually much easier. Because at COP26, you do not have 76 issues under negotiation in five tracks, and many of those actually cross-fertilizing each other, which requires a huge political mapping of the issues and you know tracking all of that. And then you certainly don't need any, and you don't need consensus, and you certainly don't need unanimity. So you know, just from a process point of view of what the diplomacy requires, it's actually a much simpler game, much simpler political game. Now, the reason why it's actually still a challenge is because what it actually means is not that any of the 195 countries have to agree with each other, because they don't. They have to, however, come with having done their own homework and their own analysis of what their decarbonization efforts have helped them to pursue their own cleaner economic development uh, within their countries. And they sort of have to throw the anchor into the future, right? And they have to say, this is how much I've been able to do. And now, because we have better technologies, more finance, better policies, here is where I'm going to go. And they have to throw that into the future. That requires bold vision, because they do not know how they're going to get there. And so the, the very understandable temptation is going to be to just put very, very incremental little pieces out there, because I know exactly what policies and who's going to invest in my country and you know how much battery, da, 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 battery power I'm going to have and how much I can increment renewable. And therefore, I'm just going to go this much. No, that's not enough. Right? So they have to, so that is a very different effort. And it, what it means is a huge bilateral, not multilateral, bilateral effort on the part of the UK government, in particular of, uh, of diplomacy and, the, and um, yeah, the whole diplomatic corps, to encourage countries to do that homework and then come with a bold vision, despite the fact that we will have three friends who won't do the same. So, so just to the point of um, communicating for success at COP26, so progress is all about substance and optics, right, in these regards. It's, you're unlikely to have, or you will never have, something that just solves all issues associated with climate change for all time, right? This is an iterative process, and part of it is about how much progress you make, what is real there that's substantive, and part of it is also about whether people agree that it's progress. So... One slightly controversial thing I would say is the world could have declared Paris a failure if it had looked at it from a certain perspective, right? It could have looked at it and said, well, this doesn't... Tom. That's right, exactly. I've been waiting for that. So, Who invited you to that party anyway? <laughs> so the world could have looked at Paris. And in fact, there were some people tempted to do this and say, it is not, you know, it doesn't provide a long-term target that every country is legally implemented, that they have to get to 1.5 within a few years. It's only the first bit that's legally binding and then the next bit's illegal. Well, both are legally binding, but they're separate, right? It's a bottom-up initiative that combines different elements together. So you could have chucked rocks at that and said, it's got all sorts of problems, it's not successful, etc. And if that had been done at a big enough scale, it actually would have removed some of the authority of the Paris Agreement, right? If the environmental groups and others had sort of repeatedly said, well, it's not enough, et cetera, et cetera. So my concern, actually, about COP26 is that there's nothing they can do to have it be declared a success because they won't be able to deliver everything that everybody wants. And the environmental movement has changed since 2015. In 2015, the theory of change was all about momentum. You know, we take one step, that enables us to take the next step, we then take another step, and that's how we change the world. Since then, the science has become more alarming and we've become less tolerant as a result because we're scared. And we've had more impacts. And we've had more impacts, right? So we've seen what's happening. So now it's like, if you don't propose a solution that is commensurate with the scale of the problem right now, you're part of the problem. And I personally feel genuinely confused about that because I can see it can be good, right? It has more of an edge to it. On the other hand, I sort of, I worry that Glasgow will, Glasgow will not be able to do something that meets that very high bar and I think it's unrealistic to expect it to. So there are very, very good people in the COP team here in London who are working on this and who really understand this issue. And they have to reach out to communicate that, to start with, that complexity of that issue, and help everybody reach agreement on you know, what is success and how far can we go. So it sounds as though what you're suggesting is what um, our Food Farming Countryside 
commission chair talks about all the time. You have to be radical, but you have to be practical. Right. And we absolutely have to see practical actions now because we do have a prime minister who is adept at describing big visions. But as my grandmother would say, it, you know, fine words, butter, no parsnips. If we are not able to deliver the actions, <laughs> bringing in all family like members that, yeah. today. Um, but this is about taking really practical action. So yeah. finding ways to describe and bank those actions yeah. seems to me to be key to our preparations mm. now. What are we going to do yeah. and how are we going to do it and how will that enable us to do the next thing? Yeah. Yeah. Let's take some more yeah. questions. So there's lots of men over here. I'm going to take a, one, two, and then there are two women. Yes? Thank you. Yes. So the gentleman with the I, well, you, you do for the recording, I think. And please keep your questions really short and sweet so we can get as many in as possible. Can you hear me? Yes. Okay. Um, this is the first room that Alexander Graham Bell tested the telephone for the first time in public. So from those days to AI and DeepMind. Fantastic. We talk a lot about carbon footprint. One sector that I am somewhat surprised we haven't addressed is the defense and military interventions. And I recently launched my paper at East West Institute, and I want to ask you both, if you look at the primary, secondary, and tertiary of mobilizing hundreds of thousands of young men and women who are at the forefront of challenges of climate change whenever we face them in the future, and then you see the equipment, the destruction, then the detour of the uh, jets and passenger jets, then the Coast Guard, and then the reconstruction, what is the net effect of the recent interventions? And in my paper, I've proposed a carbon tax and you know, a sort of measurement of simulation and how would that be counted in terms of the tons of the CO2 emissions? Because if you look at the past uh, five conflicts in the past 20 years, uh, this is the size of one third of Europe burning, Yemen, Libya, Syria, Iraq, and Afghanistan. So how can we add through that as well to your goals? And do you see any sense in my proposal, as challenging as it may be, in introducing carbon tax for non-UN sanctioned interventions in sovereign states? Oh, thank you, interesting. And there's a woman here in the front. Oh, the microphone's just scampered past. Thank you so much. I'm so pleased to see that there is a role for stubborn optimists like ourselves in this. Um, my question really was, we know what the, um, the scale of the challenge is. We know what the gaps with the government policies are. Um, we know what the technological solutions are, but there is something that's not getting us over mm. that um, hurdle. What I would like is, um, what would you recommend non-state actors, particularly businesses, progressive businesses who are kind of getting behind this, should be doing more to give some level of assurance to governments to say, we can do this, we can accelerate the pace? Excellent, thank you. And one more question from the woman with the scarf. Thank you. Which scarf? That, the one with the glasses. <laughs> oh, both glasses, both scarves. This is really confusing. Short hair. Short hair. All wearing yes. scarves today. Yes. Uh, I just have a, a slightly different question. I was just wondering, how do you think, Tom, that it helped you, possibly, to take on this challenge that Christiana gave you uh, by being a Buddhist monk? Or having been a Buddhist monk? Shall I, shall I take that one? You take the other two? Industrial military complex. So actually, just a word on the industrial military complex, and Christiana can fill in. Actually, they've been amazing, right? And actually, many of the most thoughtful and reflective people on the climate crisis are senior members of the, of the forces, right, who at the front line really see what's happening and they see the human cost. And in many cases, they've known the regions for decades, right? And so they've seen what's changed and they know what the outcome is. It's been some years, but I, I looked into, I mean, I remember... The footprint of these operations is just astronomical. I remember a rear admiral telling me that his um, aircraft carrier did two inches to the gallon or something of this, this, um, you know, this fuel. So, I mean, I, I think any mechanism to manage that is great. It's the enforcement strategy and, and who is the organising institution and authority that can implement that, that would be the question. But I'm sure Christiana would reflect more on that. Um, I mean, it's a very interesting question. Um, I think that, you know, living, living in a monastery when I was younger, it was my early 20s, um, was, was the most, one of the most instructive experiences of my life. I lived in a, in a forest monastery, so I was on my own for 
maybe 20 hours out of 24. And the first few months of living somewhere like that are, are kind of awful, really, because you're sort of, you're very agitated, your mental processes kind of carry on. But then after a while, they sort of slow down and you can kind of look around and see where you are and see how beautiful it is on this planet. And I think that in the end, what I took out of it was a tiny, tiny chink of light between phenomena and reaction. And that's actually been really helpful for me because it's enabled me to have a, a breath where others have been a bit chaotic. Sometimes. <laughs> so as the daughter of both a revolutionary and the only head of state to have ever canceled the army, abolished the army, I am very qualified to answer your question. <laughs> Um, a couple of things. First, let me say that um, perhaps surprisingly, perhaps not, it was the military, the armies of many countries led by the army of the United States who were the first ones to call the fact that climate change is a um, national security threat. Uh, and uh, we were so grateful for that when they were very, very clear about that. Then several armies in Europe as well, uh, as well as NATO, came and supported that uh, with a lot of analysis of how unabated climate change is a national security threat, for, in particular for those countries that will still have at least portions of their land that are inhabitable against other countries that um, whose countries will become uninhabitable. Um, and so we were very appreciative of that. Secondly, it was the US Army. It's very, very odd for me to be saying anything positive about the United States, but you notice all of this is in the past, right? Um, it was the US Army, actually, who was the first army to begin to adopt more and more renewable energy technologies either for transport or for delivery of, uh, of, uh, of equipment that was necessary. And uh, they have continued, even under current administration, they have continued to lessen their footprint because it is cheaper. That's why. <laughs> because it is cheaper to have electricity produced by the sun when you're out there you know, somewhere, rather than have to haul all of this fossil fuel liquids um, and in particular, as they always explain to us, the transport of all of those liquid fossil fuels are absolutely a target in themselves. So when you don't have to transport that anymore to your forces, but actually you can have an electricity generated on site wherever you are, uh, makes, uh, makes uh, staging much, uh, much cheaper. Um, however, having said all of that, the fact is that my father's solution is the best. Because honestly, abolishing the army, uh, you, can you imagine the cost that we would be avoiding? And if, I, at, at the risk of going into you know, nirvana, since we're talking about Buddhism, at the risk of talking, uh, uh, going into nirvana, how much better our resources, financial resources, and our brain resources would be used if we didn't have any army here at all? So if your tax is actually going to lead to no armies, I am fully for it. And you were going to come back something. I just wanted to say what has been the CO2 emissions of the past 20 years? And what is the carbon footprint of that? And then to say, if we were to avoid this in the next 20 years, how quicker we could get to your results? Because if we don't measure it, we don't know what yes. we have added in terms of that. Agree. Can we pick up the, the question from uh, what yes, we hear about the non-state actors? How can the so, non so, so that was exactly Tom's turf. I don't know why he doesn't want to answer the question, but um, uh, that was exactly Tom's turf when, uh, when we got to barriers in the negotiation, or in fact, where we are now. It is definitely, definitely the non-party stakeholders, i.e. everyone who's not a national government, uh, can be so much more supportive, much more nimble, much more direct. 
Uh, city governments have a much more direct contact with their citizens. Corporations are told immediately either by their shareholders or by their customers where they should be going. So the, the feedback and the, um, and the information to those levels of, uh, of decision making are much more direct. And it was precisely the convening of all of those that allowed for the Paris Agreement. And now at COP26, where there's going to be a geopolitical, very complex situation, we're actually looking forward to having a beautiful contrast between the political reality, that of course is a reality, and then the real economy reality, um, that is going to be very different because this is going to be very, very complex because of, of our three friends. But this will actually be nothing but good news. Nothing but good news. Because whether it is the financial sector, the energy sector, the transport sector, on and on and on and on, we will see nothing but good news from this side. So yes, absolutely necessary. And that's the kind of messaging that governments need in order to be um, a little bit more bold. Um, and if I can take the, the last question. The reason why I wanted to meet Tom when someone was told, what told me that he had been a Buddhist monk is because I have for many years been a Buddhist student myself. And I knew that there's a lot of wisdom, uh, not necessarily in the religion, if you will, of Buddhism, because I, I don't study that, but I am a student of the, just the day-to-day -day practices um, of uh, of Buddhism that make us much better human beings? And I can answer your question very concretely. At some point, there was uh, a huge knot in the negotiations because industrialized countries were refusing to accept their responsibility, historic responsibility, um, and were blaming developing countries that actually all future emissions were going to come from them. And conversely, developing countries were blaming industrialized countries that the industrialized countries had actually caused climate change, which is factually true. It's not ideology. Um, and, and they weren't even able to talk to each other about this. There was a constant blaming going on and a constant um, who is the victim of who. And um, my Buddhist studying at that time had actually made me realize that if you get into the victim-perpetrator role that all of us have in so many different aspects of our life, that that victim-perpetrator per role is one that is completely impossible to win. Because the moment I accuse you of being my perpetrator, you will not stand still. You will then turn around and tell me that I'm actually your perpetrator only a day before, or a year, or, or you know, several years, as I was witnessing. And I also realized that, um, that I was doing that in my own personal life. And I had viewed myself, or was viewing myself, as a victim, and had pointed very, very clear accusatory fingers at a person, my former husband, who I had um, identified as being the perpetrator. And I, it was very clear to me that as long as I embodied that reality, what I was responsible for was not going to untangle itself. And that because what is true at one level of the system is true at all levels of the system, my first responsibility was to take myself out of that victim-perpetrator role. Because if I continued to do it, I would see all the countries continue that. And we would never have gotten to the Paris Agreement. So it wasn't until I did my own little homework, which wasn't easy, and I'm still working on it. <laughs> it wasn't until I did my own homework around this and took the edge out of that, right? The edge out of that and began to see that this really is a completely fruitless and endless discussion um, that helps no one. And that the only way out was to exit from that and see everything actually from the observer role, which is what you're taught um, in, uh, in these Buddhist practices. And lo and behold, although it took a heck of a lot of work of my own, uh, and quite a long time, it was when I shifted that that I began to see the shift in the international negotiations. I'm not claiming a direct causal link, but I'm also not claiming that it was coincidental. Thank you.
think that little moment just illustrates so beautifully the power of acting with passion and with compassion so that we can all create the coalitions we need to make the change that we want. We've run out of time, I'm afraid, and there's going to be some moments for you outside to meet Tom and Christiana, pick up a copy of the book. Mine is already well-thumbed. I commend it absolutely wholeheartedly. And follow their progress, too, on their brilliant podcast, Outrage and Optimism, which is great fun to fall asleep to. It means don't fall asleep for ages. And it is great fun to have. But it's Glad we can help. Yes, yes. And please do keep in touch with um, us here at the RSA, the Food Farming and Countryside Commission, is going to continue to do our work in convening the leadership needed, particularly around food farming and a just rural transition to make sure those voices are heard in the design and run-up and, and the practice of COP26 and indeed beyond. So please join me once again in thanking wholeheartedly Christiana Figueres and Tom Rivet Karnak for that most wonderful um, presentation this evening. Thanks for listening. If you like this podcast, head to our YouTube channel for inspiring talks, interviews and animations.